previously on Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We were talking about the mob. Hey, hey, Paisan. Oh, we are just going to get all the offensive accents right out of the way real oh, fast. right at the beginning of the show, eh? No, okay, no, sit down, relax, have yourselves a little, uh, little prosciutto, a little mozzarella. Go, uh, go to your nonna's house for a spaghetti, you know? Hey, you're marginalizing people here. Hey, Maron. <laughs> hey, yo, Copernicus, why don't you go navigate yourself back to another podcast head? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. And I am Chris Miller. And today we are getting into part two of our series on Meyer Lansky, the accountant of the mob. Chris and I are hanging out, of course. We are uh, sipping, we're getting in the mob spirit, sipping on a... Uh, a nice little uh, glass of Montepulciano. Yeah, nice, nice little Abruzzo. Chris, salud. salud. So I think we're just going to get right into picking up where we left off. And to review to this point, Meyer Lansky was a Russian Jewish immigrant who, after growing up in the tough streets of New York, nursed a budding criminal enterprise in his teens, which rapidly expanded to encompass nearly every possible grift, racket, and means of making illicit money. Joining forces with underworld figures like Charles Lucky Luciano, Bugsy Siegel, Arnold Rothstein, and Al Capone, he massively expanded his holdings. And where we last left our old buddy Lansky, by the start of 1932, he and his compatriots had just finished a campaign to effect a violent takeover of organized crime in New York City by eliminating the old-school Sicilian mob bosses known as the Mustache Peets. I love the Mustache Peets. Yeah, the old 50 Calibus. <laughs> And at the same time, taking the lead in establishing a national organized crime structure known as the Syndicate, and later Murder Inc. Murder. I wasn't going to do my jaw rule. I'm glad you. No, I was getting out ahead of you on that one. I was getting out ahead of you on that one. I yelled at you last (laughs) week about it, and I figured I would just beat you to the punch. I like it. I like it. So it was during this time before the Twenty First Amendment took hold and removed prohibition, and where uh, this is where organized crime had such a huge draw. Due to the opportunity for fast money in the times of hardship brought on by the 1929 stock market crash and the onset of the Great Depression, and it's during this time that the syndicate reached the height of its power. And, and believe me, I understand the draw. I do. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a glamour to it, you know, fast cars, nice clothes, lots of cash, and the criminal mystique that's mm. sort of always existed. Uh, For starters, every member of Murder, Inc. was paid a healthy base salary simply to be on retainer and a bonus of anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, which is $15,000 to $75,000 today, per successful contract. Moreover, each member's family was guaranteed a pension if the member died in the line of duty or was imprisoned. Uh, Financial aid from the organization was available if the family fell on particularly hard times and access to a formidable army of very talented defense attorneys. Uh, was granted if they were nabbed by law enforcement. So this creates an organization of cautious, methodical, trained killers who, you know, in the rare case that they were detained where either they were able to bribe their way out of trouble or if they weren't able to do that, they kept tight-lipped. They served their time with their heads down to avoid implicating their employers, really really embracing that old-school Sicilian idea of omerta, that code of silence that existed in the mob all the way up until the 80s. Um, and this was established throughout the entire national web of organized crime, and, and, and it became the standard. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in 1933, 
Prohibition is finally repealed. The bootlegging trade becomes pretty much defunct. But by this time, all of the syndicates, other rackets, were pretty much making up for the uh, all the profits lost that, uh, from running booze. So as the 1930s plugs on, the number of murders carried out by the syndicate begins to attract more and more and more attention, particularly from the newly formed FBI. And the system was far from foolproof. Mistakes started to get made. Uh, one example we have is that of Irving Penn, who was a well-known classical music publishing executive who was gunned down in his car, having been mistaken for Philip Orlovsky, who was a garment industry labor union leader who was set to testify against Louis Buckalter, who oversaw the syndicate's division of Jewish hitmen. And this became a very high-profile case. Another attention grabber was the case of Dutch Schultz, who was one of the founding fathers of the syndicate, who found himself squirming under the attention of New York special prosecutor and future governor, Thomas Dewey. And future president of the United States by accident. By, by accident. <laughs> oh, no. For the, for, yeah, his term was the length of one headline. Yep. We've all seen that famous picture of Harry Truman on the back of the train car holding up the newspaper that says Dewey, Dewey defeats, defeats Truman. Truman. That's, that's a pretty good burn. Like, that's a yeah. good flex. That's good. That, that, is, that is roast mode at its very finest. Uh, so Schultz had been federally indicted for tax evasion, but even after managing to shake off that charge... Dewey was relentless. So Schultz had everything to lose. He controlled multiple labor unions. He was getting $2 million annually in protection rackets, which is about $30 million bucks today. And his numbers rackets that in, in New York alone were bringing in $35,000 a day. That's insane. That's, that's a little less than a million Yeah, in, t- in today's cash. So Schultz puts in a request to the syndicate to have a hit put out on Dewey, but this is... Definitely too high profile of a target. It violates the syndicate's rule on assassinating political figures. And it's going to bring down so much heat on the mob if they carry it out. So a frustrated Schultz announces that he's going to take the matters. uh, He's going to take care of matters himself. And guess what? He says that he's now a liability to the syndicate. So October 24th, 1935, two gunmen crept into the palace chop house in Newark, shot Schultz right in the heart, killed him. And so, with the heat turned up on the assassination system of Murder, Inc., uh, Meyer Lansky decides to step down from his position as chairman of the board to focus on expanding his other rackets, primarily gambling. And over the course of the second half of the 1930s, Lansky and Bugsy Siegel go whole hog into the casino industry. And they're now a long way from their roots of fleecing drunks with sidewalks crap games. And by now it built a reputation that was pretty near sacred. I mean, you did not speak ill of these guys because you really had no reason to. They were universally recognized for their scrupulous honesty and their stiff territoriality. And when it came to casinos, Lansky prided himself on providing his customers games that were 100% straight. Because not only are the profits going to be pretty comparable to fixed games... Your casino's unblemished record ensures that your tables are always full. Yeah, it's it's weird to think that Lansky ended up making more money mm-hmm. because he was technically making less money yeah. than a clip joint. Yeah. Yeah, he's not fixing his tables. He's not, not loading dice. Well, so you're making half as much money because you're not running a clip joint. You're not running loaded games. But there's twice as many people at your tables. Exactly. They know it's they're, all not, they're not getting It doesn't fleeced. really matter. And you're not going to get people's ire up. You're not making enemies when you're mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah, it's a very Lansky move. It really is. Yeah, and, and he's in the casino business now. This is the easiest business in the world to make money. People are giving you money in exchange for nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked in a casino for like three years. I they, they don't build that place 
to for you to make money. No, they don't. The, always, the odds are always going to be in the house's favor. Mm-hmm. It's it's impossible to not make money. Um, it, it's I can't think of a single situation where you would have oh I don't know three bankruptcies on a casino in fifteen years. Oh, <laughs> oh wait a minute, yes I can. But we'll move on from that. Contraire, mon frere. So Lansky handles the numbers and the business side of the operation, and Siegel handles security. He keeps he's keeping an eye out for rival gangsters moving on on their territory, and he's keeping law enforcement at bay with bribes and extortion. They had this real sagacity in dealing with opponents in other ways that didn't involve violence, and that made them so successful. So, for example, when they found out that the bootlegger and racketeer Waxy Gordon was committing the cardinal sin of neglecting to launder his money through offshore accounts, thereby leaving a trail that would lead right to him, Lansky decided to leak that little bit of tidbit, that little tidbit of information to the IRS. They go right to Waxy Gordon. He gets sentenced to 10 years for tax evasion. Problem solved. (laughs) Nobody gets killed. Some, you know, federal prosecutors and law enforcement get their man. You really he gets can't taken off Lansky. on Lansky. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, actually, Gordon attempted to retaliate by putting a hit out on Lansky and Siegel. And three brothers, these guys called the Fabrizios, decided to. And I love this story. <laughs> I love it so much. They tethered together a bundle of dynamite. Tied it to a long string, lit the fucking thing, <laughs> and lowered it down the chimney. Very slowly down the chimney of the office. <laughs> it's so great. Well, they hear this hissing sound, and they just see this bundle of just dynamite this, appear this in the fireplace. Bugs Bunny shit. This is so Bugs Bunny. This is, I mean, this is like Wiley Coyote like a, trying to nail the fucking road. That's exactly what it's like. You just picture, like, the old, like, brass clock on the front. <laughs> But it's just a big bundle of dynamite that they it's lower so through the good. chimney. It's Siegel so sees it. Yeah, he sees grabs it. Grabs it and throws it out the window. He cuts the string. <laughs> pulls out a knife, cuts the string, throws the fucker out the window. And it, and it goes and off. Kaboom. Right in midair. Yeah, blew the, the wall out. Now, it, Bugsy's, he got some superficial injuries. But apart from that, he's okay. Ends up going to the hospital. He sneaks out of his hospital room, climbs down the side of the building, goes out and kills the Fabrizios. And then he snuck back in. Snuck back in. And so he had the perfect alibi. He left the hospital. He has an ironclad alibi. alibi. Yep. It's brilliant. It's so sneaky. It's so spy versus spy. (laughs) Yes, precisely. Could you imagine, like, the Fabrizios, like, sitting in their apartment thinking about, like, okay, so that didn't work, so what are we going to try next time? And then. Who is it? <laughs> you open the door, and there's Siegel, like all bandaged up in the face. Mamma mia! <laughs> I knew you were gonna work that. <laughs> it's like the old loan shark sketches from Saturday Night Live in the seventies. Yes, it's just like <laughs> everything about this unintentionally hilarious. Like the the one thing that I, I want everybody to take home from listening to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, is that shit that happened a long time ago was hilarious. Oh, it's great. The bundle full of dynamite on a string is just, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, this will fix them. Yeah, so good. So by 1937, Bugsy's starting to get a lot of heat from law enforcement and a lot of hit contracts being put out on him by rival mobsters. So Lansky decides to send him to the West Coast to expand their operations uh, regarding regarding gambling. And that's where the expansion of Lansky's empire truly goes national. So teaming up with mobsters like Jack Drogna and Mickey Cohen, 
casinos and gambling rooms are being set up all the way down the West Coast and into the interior western states from L.A. to Seattle to Denver into a state that had just legalized gambling in 1931, Nevada, and this little desert crossroads at a place called Las Vegas. So uh, bookmaking operations are also being started. Substantial narcotics trafficking routes are now established between the U.S. and Mexico for the very first time, a thing that's going to play a a big role all the way up through the days of Pablo Escobar, all the way up to the present day, really. Mm -hmm. And so within five years, the bookmaking operations alone on the West Coast were pulling in half a million dollars a day. That's 5.8 million bucks today. So Lansky's Western Casino Empire begins to take shape. He's also setting up casinos and racetracks in upstate New York, New Orleans, southern Florida. And from southern Florida, he begins to look across the water to Cuba. But we're going to get to that in a bit. So by this time, even though he'd stepped away from being the primary signatory for Murder, Inc., he still had the personal charge of most of the finances for the syndicate, bankrolling all of their major operations, and he even took control of some of the personal finances of mobsters facing serious indictments, such as Lucky Luciano. Like, Lucky Luciano is now facing tax evasion charges. He's facing charges for running a uh, prostitution ring. And (laughs) he doesn't have control over his own wallet. He's getting an allowance from Lansky. That's insane. (laughs) Put him on a very short leash. So, according to the book, The Making of Las Vegas and Its Hold on America, quote, For Luciano and other gangsters, Lansky was the preeminent investment banker and broker, a classic manager and financier of an always-growing, multi-ethnic confederation of legal and illegal enterprises throughout the nation. He organized crime along corporate hierarchical lines, delineated authority and responsibility, holdings and subsidiaries, and most importantly, meticulously distributed shares of profits and proceeds, bonuses, and prerequisites. In business, he preferred to own men more than property, especially public officials whose complicity was essential. He did not, like most of his associates, merely bribe politicians or policemen, but gave them a share of the profits, working them into a a more subtle, lasting venality, bringing them in as partners. If you can't beat them, own them. Own them. So, and in 1937, Lansky also is the first person in U.S. organized crime to take advantage of the new Swiss Banking Act of 1934, which guarantees anonymity for all account owners in Swiss banks and sets about moving almost all of the mob's money into Swiss bank accounts, making it practically untraceable for U.S. law enforcement. There's no paper trail. You can't get access. You can't get the specifics. The Swiss government will not provide it to you. And at this time, Lansky even diversified his business portfolio into the music industry, distributing leases for organs, jukeboxes, and pianos made by the famous Wurlitzer Company to bars, restaurants, and other establishments for a hefty 60% of every sale. Yeah, you wouldn't think that Lansky was going to be the machine man, but no, here we are. Yeah, yeah. every little trick that the Fonz was able to do in Happy Days, we can thank Meyer Lansky for. All because of Meyer Lansky. Lansky especially designed them so that if you hit it... With the knife of your hand on a backward swing, it would immediately play a super cool song. Yep, there you go. Wow. Bill Haley in the comments. There you go. (laughs) So, despite his reputation for being a behind-the-scenes player, which is certainly true, Lansky also managed the front ends of his businesses with a lot of great panache. Uh, His grandson, Meyer II, said in an interview, There was a part of him that was very outgoing and social. He liked to have drinks, to listen to music. He wanted the best. 
when he couldn't get Carmen Miranda to play one of his casinos in Florida, he flew to Cuba and came back that night to bring her these special maracas that she wanted in order to get her to play the gig. <laughs> Which I, I love. He went out of his way to please people. And as we mentioned before, despite his, es his escalating wealth, Lansky always put on a, a very humble appearance. He was... Um, you know, he, would, he wouldn't wear flashy clothes. He wouldn't wear a lot of jewelry. You wouldn't be able to, if you pass him on the street, pick him out as a man of extreme means. Yeah, he definitely prided himself on that ability to kind of blend in. Mm -hmm. For And it, it was after this, like after kind of the expansion into Cuba, there was a 10-year stretch where Meyer Lansky's name was never in the newspaper. Not once. 10 years. Not once. For one of the most powerful men in the country. Yeah. For the guy years. holding all the mob's money. That could you imagine how impossibly <laughs> happy that made him? Oh, he Just, was happier than a big and perfect. Slot. It's perfect for him. Yeah. So the 1930s are drawing to a close, and at this point, the world is getting closer and closer and closer to the outbreak of World War II. And so Lansky and his Jewish associates begin to step outside their usual criminal activities to begin to counter a growing anti-Semitic pro-Nazi movement in the U.S. Like, you had organized groups that supported Hitler in the U.S., specifically one called the German-American Bund. Uh, and Lansky would send his gangsters to break up fascist meetings and rallies throughout New York, and actually all throughout the country. You know, they'd be having this rally. They've got their Nazi flags. They've got their armbands. They've got the photo of Hitler. They're Sieg Heiling. And all of a sudden, the doors burst open, and in come... Here comes Lansky's 15, muscle. 15... 20 of Lansky's guys. These giant they, Eastern European dudes with square jaws just ready to crack some skulls. the ever-loving shit out of these Nazis. Quite frankly, I think we could learn a lot from them today. Yeah. I mean, you, you never would have thought we would have needed Lansky to come back and show yeah. us how to cave in Nazi skulls in New York City, but here we are. Here Everything we are. old is new again. Yeah, they would beat them up. They'd throw them through the windows. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Lansky's kind of way to... To, then, to be a, a true patriot. Never allowed him to kill anybody. No, they never, never killed any killing. Breaking bones, that was you encouraged. They bu um, they bust you up, but they mm, would never kill you. Yeah, they didn't have knives. They, a lot of these guys carried bats and clubs. They wouldn't yeah. have knives. They wouldn't have guns. And uh, Lansky stated years later that, quote, we wanted to show them that Jews would not always sit back and accept their insults. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Especially whenever, you know, 15 or 20 guys are... Throwing dudes through plate glass windows. <laughs> That's, I mean, if you want to show somebody that you're not ready to, to sit back and accept an insult, yeah, fire them through a window. Now, you prick. Yeah. So when war breaks out, finally, December 7th, 1941, Lansky catches the attention of the Office of Naval Intelligence and agrees to be a part of what became known as Operation Underworld. Now, I love the story of this. We, we could do an entire episode on Operation I think Underworld we should. alone, and we might... Uh, in the future, because there's a lot of a lot of like kind of grim implications that you and I discussed earlier about overlord, yeah. but we'll 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 get into that at length. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk to it specific. We'll yeah, we'll talk to it at length and, at a later date. But Operation Underworld consisted of recruiting criminal figures to use their control of docks and shipyards and their connections and communications throughout the underworld to keep an eye out for German infiltrators and saboteurs on the East Coast. In return for immunity from prosecution during the course of the war and the release of Lucky Luciano from prison on charges of running a prostitution ring, plus some cash payments, 
Uh, the mob, in return, would provide intelligence on possible infiltration. They would enhance security at the ship bar- uh, shipyards that are building ships necessary for the war effort. They are going to prevent labor strikes, and they limit the theft by black marketeers of vital war supplies and equipment. Now, this Operation Underworld is brought about by this incident of the burning of a ship named the SS Normandy. It's a massive, advanced French cruise liner. It was it was faster than any cruise liner ever seen before. You wouldn't get another ship its size for about another 35 years. It was huge, and it's being docked at Pier 88 in New York City. And on uh, it's, you know, France has been taken over by the Nazis at this point, so the U.S. impounds the ship, and they decide to uh, convert her into a troop ship for transporting soldiers to, to Europe. Now, February 9th, 1942, the Normandy burns to the waterline and it capsizes. Now, the official cause is the, the heat of a blowtorch setting light to a big stack of cork-filled life preservers, but most people suspected arson. And it was said that Lansky was one of the planners of this attack. Now, there's no evidence to truly back that up, but it's and it's simple hearsay, but... It's said that the arson was a plot to convince prosecutors to release Luciano from prison and secure a pardon in return. Basically, the story is that the mobsters set Operation Underworld in motion. They, you know, they set up this incident to say, oh, look, you know, look what's happening. The German infiltrators are burning these ships in the dockyards. You need our help. We may never know the truth, but... um, Yeah, there's there's no concrete evidence. Uh, In all likelihood... It probably was the the cork life preservers. It was, yeah. These guys were overworked. They had to meet a, an impossible deadline. But there's a more romantic side. Yeah, the ship was a mess. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm going to take Occam's razor here and say that the easiest explanation is the most likely. Correct. I think that was probably the case. But yeah, but it doesn't work. It's an as interesting well as the podcast. Theory. Yeah, it's an interesting theory to tell Vincent. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Lansky snuck on at night yeah. and torched the son of a bitch. Yeah. So there's pages and pages and pages of conspiracy theories about this, but. He lowered a bomb in through one of the smokestacks. <laughs> on bundle of dynamite on a string. Going, <laughs> Man, that'll fix him, see? <laughs> but the Roadrunner got away anyway. So, I mean, either way, Lansky and the rest of the mob on the East Coast come out, definitely come out on top. And uh, as the war progresses, Lansky's involvement and the mob's involvement in, uh, in the war effort doesn't end there. It's said that Lansky and Luciano were prepared to part with millions of dollars in payments of Vito Genovese of the Genovese crime family, who had been deported to Italy in the late 30s, to put together a plot in the old country to assassinate Benito Mussolini, mm. throwing a massive wrench into the Axis war effort. Now, that's some that's getting into some like inglorious bastards level shit. It really is. It which, really is. Again, hearsay, if that's true, if they got away with it, think about, think about how much that would have changed the war. 1942, somebody assassinates Mussolini. I mean, yeah. It, it, oof. Right. Bit mind-boggling, and I think we're both a little too hung over to get, get into that too much. Um, so when the war ended, Lansky's finally able to return to the sole focus of making money and expanding his empire and taking it truly international. First, he has a bit of personal business to handle. His marriage to Anne finally crumbles in 1947, but while vacationing in Miami that year, he makes the, acquaint- uh, the acquaintance of Thelma Teddy Shear, a strong-willed but affectionate and fiercely devoted woman, and soon they fell head over heels in love with each other, and the pair get married the following year, and they're going to stay together until his death. 
As he goes about the business of falling in love again, he also turns his attention back to his expanding Western Empire, specifically the growing desert oasis of Las Vegas and the new jewel in the crown, the Flamingo Casino and Hotel. Now, it's marketed as the biggest, fanciest hotel. It's the finest establishment in this flashy new town. Bugsy Siegel is giving official control over its construction, but the entire vision and all of the financing is Lansky's. However, the construction project begins to face trouble, and it looks like Bugsy, though fiercely loyal, was out of his depth. Outstanding bills, shoddy workmanship, and labor disputes push back the opening of the hotel, they lead to, the, to its mafiosi investors becoming quite understandably irate. They suspect Siegel of skimming money. And news of these delays came in concert with a large summit meeting of mafia leaders, the biggest since the 1929 Atlantic City Conference, the one that established the National Syndicate, that is, then, that, uh, is held in late December of 1946 in Havana, Cuba. The attendees congregate at the Hotel Nacional, none other than Frank Sinatra being flown in for the entertainment. <laughs> of course. And spent most of the meeting discussing the uh, expansion of the narcotics trade and how to better uh, incorporate Cosa Nostra members who have been deported to Italy. But one sticky issue was what to do about Bugsy Siegel's mismanagement of the Vegas operations. Because practically every major mob figure in the U.S. had invested some money into the Flamingo. Because it presented such a big financial opportunity. So... He's vehemently defended by Lansky, who demanded that he be given a second chance to prove his ability. And he's given a temporary reprieve um, as the casino was, quote, finished in time for a December 26th opening. But the opening night is a complete flop. It's absolute shit It's a mess. disaster. And, I mean, a couple days later, the casino has to close again for repairs for several months. Yeah, the, the place casino, is they opened the it and it just fell apart. Yeah. Uh, the investors continue to demand Siegel's head on a platter. Lansky continues to keep them at bay, arguing that the casino could start to make money very soon, but the investors eventually lose their patience. And on June 20th, 1947, in Los Angeles, Bugsy Siegel is shot four times with an Army surplus M1 carbine while sitting in the living room of a, uh, of a friend. He dies instantly. 20 minutes after his death, two associates of Lansky's move into the Flamingo and announce that Meyer's taking full control of all operations. And despite the fact that the Flamingo did eventually take off, and, and it was a huge success, it generated $4 million in profit in 1948 alone. Huge return on initial investments. Lansky doesn't like Vegas. He hates it. He always talks so much about how he hated Las Vegas, and he finds it more trouble than it's worth. And he decides to hand control off of all the Vegas operations to the Chicago outfit. But it's only going to be the beginning of a string of troubles for Lansky over the next couple decades. So by the early 1950s, organized crime was under a very bright national spotlight. And Lansky soon finds himself under investigation by the Kefever Committee, uh, which is a group convened by the U.S. Senate and is summoned to court on three different occasions. And Lansky doesn't like media attention. And every time he goes into court, he's got to go past cameras and newspaper reporters, and he's in the newsreels, and he hates it. And um, he, he's eventually released without charge. Nothing sticks. Uh, but he decides to spend the next few years trying his best to legitimize all of his U.S. gambling operations. But he's hamstrung by what he sees as unjust regulations and illogical laws, and it finally no longer makes any sense to him to have his nerve center in the U.S., and he looks to a place that had caught his attention before, 90 miles from the southern tip of Florida, Cuba. In the 1950s, uh, mid-50s, Lansky got the opportunity to 
start really start working operations down there because Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista personally invited him to renovate and resuscitate Cuba's flagging gambling landscape. Now, given its proximity to Florida, Cuba before the revolution was a playground for affluent Americans looking for a tropical getaway, and they turned a blind eye to most of the vices demanded by the tourists, gambling especially. However, American journalists had painted Cuban casinos as corrupt and loaded clip joints, and Lansky's job would be to remodel the most popular casinos and racetracks, inject into them the integrity that he'd used to make his reputation. For this, he'd be paid $25,000 a year, which in the mid-50s is a damn good salary, plus a very significant share of the profits. Now, in addition to supervising the resurgence of other casinos, Lansky gets eager to capitalize on the swelling market, and he gets investors to sink $19 million into a titanic project that put even the Flamingo to shame. And on December 10th, 1957, a blinding cast of cinema stars, musicians, and members of the social elite attended the grand opening of the glitzy, air-conditioned Havana Riviera Hotel and Casino. And despite having full ownership of the hotel and casino, Lansky declined to have any formal association with it, limiting the paper trail, and he's listed as the head of kitchen operations for the hotel, <laughs> which I love. It's like, no, what, no, what do you mean? I'm handling the kitchen deliveries. Yeah, That's right. what I do. Dude's out there ordering steaks. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Now, despite the Havana Riviera's massive financial success from day one, I mean, it's he is raking in the cash. It soon becomes the worst financial decision of Lansky's life, but it's caused by factors completely out of his hands. On January 1st, 1959, President Batista officially resigns and fled to the Dominican Republic, and communist guerrillas under Fidel Castro began to seize parts of Havana, including the Havana Riviera. In fact, the Havana Riviera became Castro's headquarters in Havana. It became the headquarters for a short time for the entire communist revolution in Cuba. Could you imagine how that would have chapped Lansky's ass to see his hotel with like a bunch of dirty bunch of dirty guys like, and, gorilla, and like sleeping mili- halls. military fatigues with rifles. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> anyway. So Lansky decides that fleeing is the best option as Castro's preferred method of dealing with gringo gangsters was a bullet in the head mm. and packs in a hurry. He hops one of the last flights out of Havana airport before guerrillas take over the airport as well. And by October, the whole island has been seized, all of the hotels nationalized, and gambling outlawed. Yeah, Castro, not a not a big dice guy. No, turns out, Castro, not all that much fun. Yeah, wasn't a big, wasn't big on... <laughs> Go on figure, yeah. He, he didn't want people enjoyment. coming in and rolling those knuckle bones. So with this reverse, Lansky decided it was best to lie low and regroup and spent almost the entire decade of the 1960s at home in a state of semi-retirement. Now, that doesn't mean that this, uh, when, you know, you were talking about how for a decade he wasn't in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. This is that time. Right. Now, this didn't mean his interests in the U.S. were dead, and they're still bringing in piles of cash. He's running them through Swiss bank accounts, but he's not, he's taking a very hands-off approach to these operations. Yeah, and that series of missteps must have really gotten to him. Just the way he kind of behaves, yeah. he just pretty much locks himself in his, in his home for a decade. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, he's in, his, he's in his mid to late 50s by now, but this is, why I think, when his midlife crisis officially kicks in. And when I say crisis, I mean crisis. Crisis. This is also whenever his health really starts to take a It really does well. start so to this, decline. Yeah. He yeah, has uh, a lot of issues with stomach ulcers. He mm-hmm. has a heart condition. Yeah, he's not a healthy man by this point. Mm-hmm. Now, during the early 60s, the FBI bugged Lansky's house. Any of the establishments he still frequented, which weren't that many... 
and tapped his phone. Now, this is a tactic that had proved successful in nabbing many other mobsters during this time period, but from Lansky, he was so good at masking his communications, they got zero useful pieces of evidence. They got nothing. They got nothing from tapping his phones, from bugging his house. He just and even didn't if they did get anything, uh, they were legal. Yeah. So they it, all the evidence would be inadmissible. Yeah. It was perfectly legal to own a casino at this point, right? Yeah. So, but the trouble really starts to come in uh, October twenty eighth, nineteen sixty nine. Lansky is served with a summons to appear before a federal grand jury, having been accused of skimming profits from the flamingo in Las Vegas. He's acquitted of that. But four months later, he's arrested whilst returning from an Acapulco vacation, carrying a bottle of Donatol tablets, a, uh, a very potent barbiturate without a prescription, and he's charged with narcotics possession. Again, manages to avoid jail time as the charges against him are dismissed. But he's indicted a third time, this time for tax evasion in early 1970, manages to get those charges dropped on a technicality, claiming, I, I think... Um, Judicial bias or something like that. I can't remember. That exactly, sounds right. But, I don't yeah. remember exactly which one it was. Now, having had enough of the harassment and the me- negative media attention, in late July 1970, he and Teddy packed their bags and they moved to Israel, hoping to take advantage of what's called Israel's Law of Return, which grants uh, guaranteed citizenship uh, to all mem- to quote all members of Jewish people everywhere, be they living in poverty and fear of persecution or in affluence and safety except in cases of criminal activity. Now, this is going to come back to bite Lansky in the ass. Yep. In Israel, Meyer and Teddy are afforded an affluent life of solitude and serenity, uh, for a short time at least. Jerry Klinger in the Jewish magazine described his daily existence, quote, He arose early, before 7 a.m., and would take Bruiser, Bruiser being his Shih Tzu, <laughs> for a walk along the waterfront. I'll get a, I'll find a picture of him walking the dog. Yeah, we'll post every it. picture of him walking the dog, it's always him and this tiny little dog, and he looks super pissed off. Yeah. He's like staring directly into the camera. <laughs> <laughs> to continue the quote, returning to the hotel, he would enjoy a smorgasbord breakfast of five types of herring, ten types of cheese and breads, salads to choose from, various Middle Eastern pastries and hot dishes. He would sit and talk for hours about life in Israel, West Bank settlements, the Arab issues. Israeli politics and the like in the hotel lobby over steaming pots of coffee and cigarettes, end quote. But American journalists track him down, and the Israeli authorities become aware of his past and the allegations against him, and the Israeli Interior Ministry rejects his application for citizenship and try to extradite him back to the U.S. Now, Lansky allegedly offered at least seven countries, Argentina, Brazil, Switzerland, Bolivia, Peru, Paraguay, and Panama, all countries with, at this time, very firm non-extradition policies, a million dollars each in exchange for citizenship, none of them take him up on the offer. So on November 7th, 1972, Lansky returns to Miami and is immediately arrested. He posts his $250,000 bail immediately, spends the next year fighting the indictment for tax uh, tax evasion. And according to informant Fat Vinny Teresa, Lansky once had delivered to him his share of the profits from a casino in London that he owned in cash, a sum intentionally left out come April 15th. But Lansky is again acquitted, thanks in part to the testimony of Teddy, who presented receipts proving that Lansky had been undergoing surgery for a hernia on the day in question. So with this final escape from justice, Meyer Lansky would never again see a courtroom. He goes into quiet retirement, spending his time in New York and Miami, lives out the remainder of his days with little fuss, few public appearances, and spending his time playing with his grandchildren. And unlike so many of his associates over the course of his life, 
Meyer Lansky met his end peacefully as a free man, dying on January 15, 1983 at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital from lung cancer complications at the ripe old age of 81. Now, one mystery that persists after his death is how rich Lansky actually became over the course of his life. Uh, some, some have claimed that he had somewhere between $10,000 and $35,000. That's it. Uh, to his name at the time of his death due to the massive losses incurred by spending the bulk of his fortune on what became his disaster in Cuba and on his protracted legal battles. In fact, it's been said that Lansky was so broke that he couldn't provide for his disabled son, Buddy, who lived the rest of his adult life in destitution until his death in 1989. Now, his family claims that he actually did have a a humble fortune, including a whole bunch of jewelry, a $50,000 certificate of deposit, and a healthy inheritance for all three of his kids. But Buddy's share of the inheritance was actually stolen by his sister, Sandy. But the other side of this hotly contested debate claims that through foreign ventures, money laundering, and Swiss bank accounts, Lansky had in fact amassed a fortune as large as $300 million. Now from 1983 to now, that'd be worth over half a billion dollars today. And the debate continues to this day as to how much money he actually died with. Now, as any story telling of the story of Meyer Lansky has to concede, ours included, it's never going to be possible to fully understand his life and the way he thought, but his story can best be summed up by one of his own quotes. When you lose your money, you lose nothing. When you lose your health, you lose something. But when you lose your character, you lose everything. And that's the story of Meyer Lansky. Chris, your thoughts? Pretty sympathetic figure. A pretty sympathetic figure. Like yeah. I, I, I definitely get it. Like I, I understood the dude. Yeah, it's yeah. I understand that he ran a criminal enterprise, but there's a big part of me that admires the guy. But he was he put the organized and organized crime. Like he got rid of the boss of bosses. Yeah, and he became the chairman of a board. It had a mm-hmm. board of directors. Yeah, he changed the game entirely. Entirely. I mean. Yeah, quote unquote organized crime up to that point was it was like street gangs going after each other. Mm-hmm. He made it a business. And he made it a he made it a business and, and the amount of money being made. Now of course the inception of prohibition had something to do with this, but he came in at the right time. He definitely came in at the right time. He saw the the potential in Las Vegas, which ultimately like he ended up souring on. Mm-hmm. But he saw what gambling was. Yeah. And also like the one thing, my one of my big takeaways from this is, did anybody in the 30s do anything other than just gamble? Well, there was no TV. You know, you didn't have Netflix. Right? I, I, I guess you just had to think of different ways of and spending that's it. Time. All he did was just gamble. We're going down there, we're betting on the ponies. <laughs> I wonder how many of his horse tracks are still in existence. You know what? I'm going to be a couple. quite a lot of them, because there yeah. are a lot of horse tracks... Most of the horse tracks that are still in existence today have been around for a, a, a damn long time. Right. Um, so it. Yeah, I'll, it's quite I'll look possible. into a couple in New York. I'll see what's going on there because I oh, know yeah. there's there's quite a few still up there. Oh, and I'm sure a lot of his casinos area, so. are still going as well. I did read an article. Uh, it was from the Miami Herald right before his death, and uh, Hank Messick was the name of the author, and he mm-hmm. wrote in it, "He doesn't own property; he owns people." Yeah, and that's that's so cool. Like that, like he wanted that influence, and he realized what that could get him. Yeah. Well, and he went far beyond. Like, hey, here's ten thousand bucks to look the other way. Bingo. It's yeah. I'll give you ten thousand bucks. 
How about I give you a thousand a week on top of that, and pro- uh, out of more profits? Yeah. What you can, what can you do to help me out here? He brought. I said it's it's. Don't beat them, buy them. Yeah. You know you you don't just pay off the cops. Now you have the cops. Now it's your cops. Yeah. So yeah, that's the story of Meyer Lansky. Um, listen, everybody out there, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know we were getting a a little bit of internet side eye for stepping away from pirates i assure you we are going back to pirates next we'll week we'll go back we didn't realize that this would go sideways but uh that didn't really go that sideways i had fun with it i hope everybody out there had fun listening to the story of meyer lansky because pe- a lot of people don't know about him they know about al capone they know about lucky luciano most people don't know about meyer lansky which i think he would have liked yeah i did too you know i think that was his deal um you know now that we're done telling the story here um we just want to take a moment to, to address the 800-pound elephant in the room. We're recording this on Sunday. Of course, yesterday was, you know, waking up to, to the news of the horrible, horrible events at uh, Tree of Life, Orla Simcha Synagogue. Uh, 11 people killed in a mass shooting. Six wounded, including four police officers. Uh, this, you know, this one hit me hard. I, I live half a mile down the road from, from Tree of Life. Um... Chris and I both know some of the victims. Um, I know one of the police officers that was wounded, and it, this is a real a real punch in the gut. And uh, we just want to take a uh, take a moment to to honor the victims of uh, of this terrible tragedy: Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal. David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Rose Mallinger, and Irving Younger. We honor you. Our hearts go out to you, to your families, to the families of all the victims, and to all the congregants of Tree of Life, Orla Simcha. This this one hit me really hard. Um... You know, these are my neighbors. This is my neighborhood. And uh, to, and I know that we're all kind of reeling here in Pittsburgh. But I just want to take a minute to read a little piece by James G. Connell Jr. called The Pittsburgher's Creed. I believe in Pittsburgh the powerful, the progressive. I believe in the past of Pittsburgh and in the future founded on the heritage of that past of clean living, frugal, industrious men and women of poise, power, purity, genius, and courage. I believe that her dominant spirit is, has been, and always will be for uplift and betterment. I believe that my neighbor stands for the same faith in Pittsburgh, although his expression may vary from mine. I believe in Pittsburgh of the present and her people, possessing the virtues of all nations, fused through the melting pot to a greater potency for good. I believe in taking pride in our city, its institutions, its people, its habits. I believe in the great plans born of initiative, foresight, and civic patriotism in the minds of the great men of today, here, now. I believe that the Pittsburghers who truly represent her are those of God-fearing lives, or godless, it matters not, scorning ostentation and the seats of the ungodly. Building surely, quietly, and permanently. I believe that those who know Pittsburgh love her, her rocks and rills and templed hills. I believe that Pittsburgh's mighty forces are reproduced in a mighty people, 
staunch like the hills, and true like steel. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to help in the wake of this terrible tragedy, please donate at the National Blood Bank if you are able. And if you're also able, please donate to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society at act.hias.org or directly to the Tree of Life or Synagogue at www.tolols.org slash give. There is a, there's also a Kickstarter out uh, for the Tree of Life, uh, everybody affected by that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to Squirrel Hill and, and visit these locally owned and operated businesses. You can you can support... Uh, I'm sorry, this is just a really difficult one. I knew... Uh, yeah. I, I know two of the names on that list. And, you know, this is... This is really tough because like Pittsburgh is better than this. We simply are. This happened in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yeah. Shame on you. It I had a terrible, terrible moment when I woke up this morning because I, I stopped and I went I haven't yet felt sad. No, I'm I'm beyond sad. I haven't yet felt sad I'm yet. Very and it, angry. It's yeah. Because <laughs> The rage hasn't abated yet. You know, I, I was I was talking to a couple people and, and we had this horrible realization that this was not a question of if but when. From the moment when these goddamn mongrels were walking through the streets of Charlottesville, torchlit, chanting, Jews will not replace us, and our leader said instead of an immediate damning condemnation, said they are very fine people. I Everybody listening out there, we are better than this. Pittsburgh is better and stronger than this. We fight. And there's nothing better to fight right now than the forces of hate and and the type of animals that would do this sort of thing. So hug your neighbor a little tighter. Be kind to the people around you. But when this sort of thing rears its ugly head, smash it down into the dirt. Don't give them a chance. Embrace that spirit of Meyer Lansky of, of breaking up those terrible Nazi rallies in the late 30s. Don't give them a chance. Throw them out the goddamn windows. Throw them out the windows. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Now, I know we ended up on a very heavy note, but again, just a very, very special thanks to everybody for listening today. Next week, we are going to get into an event that we touched on in our second episode, the, uh, the blockading of Charlestown Harbor by Edward Teach, Blackbeard himself. I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that. Also, stay tuned for a little Halloween special that Chris and I are about to bring out. Yeah, we're going to put out a, a quick stinger for you. Yep, shorter uh, episode than normal, maybe 20, 25 minutes, half an hour tops. Tops. We'll, we'll keep it short yeah. for you. We're going to cover some fun we're, stuff. We are truly embracing the spooky season and oh, we're yeah. getting into Halloween. Tis the season. And then, then uh, like we said, stick around for our... Uh, blockade of Charleston Harbor uh, in our lead up to the anniversary of the Battle of Ocracoke Inlet. 300 years to the day. Uh, before we do that, Chris, where can they find us on social media? On social media, if you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at Podcast TRR. On Facebook, all you have to do is search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. On Instagram, you can find us at TRRPod. And you can drop us an email, TRRPod at gmail.com. And whenever you find us on YouTube, where you can find every single one of our episodes, uh, please like and subscribe. We'd love to hear for you. That way, we can uh, you can always be a step ahead with keeping up with our new and insightful material. Indeed. Uh, if you want to follow me on 
Uh, Instagram, you can find me at Meatneck. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Meatneck2. If you want to see mainly pictures of my dog, feel free to follow me on Instagram at Nightlife Commando. <laughs> and that is, of course, our canine outreach specialist, Jack. Special thanks to him. Special thanks, of course, to the Bloody Seaman, Pittsburgh's premier pirate punk band, for providing our music. Everybody, you'll hear from us again very soon. Thanks for listening today. And now more than ever, in these dark times, hold fast.